to me, the, the beloved community is not just about a destination. It's also about the journey to get there that we, you know, similar to the inner and outer conversation we had around the SDGs, you know, we get to experience deeper connection and community on the way to building the beloved community. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Adam, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Maurice. It's great to be on with you. I'm Reverend Adam Russell Taylor. I currently have the privilege of serving as the president of Sojourners. We're a 50-year-old peace and justice organization that works with Christians of all stripes, but also people of faith and conscience to inspire and equip them to put their faith into action for justice and certainly can share more about the work and mission of sojourners later but you know a lot of my story is tied into kind of my origin story starting with my parents and they made the controversial decision to get married in 1968 it's controversial because my mother is black and my father's white that was a pretty unpopular decision back then it was they got married just a year after interracial marriage was legalized in the United States through the case Loving versus the state of Virginia. And they instilled in me a really deep and abiding belief, really two beliefs. One, that we are all made in the image of God, the likeness and image of God. And as a result, you know, our diversity, I mean, first kind of my diversity as a biracial black man, but also in a larger sense, our nation's diversity and our world's diversity is an incredible and special gift and not a weakness or a liability. And the other is that my generation, Generation X, but also subsequent generations after the civil rights struggle inherited the unfinished business of that movement. And so I became really mesmerized, kind of infatuated with the civil rights struggle from an early age. I you know, read as much as I could get my hands on. I became really a huge fan of the Eyes and the Prize series. And I learned very quickly that Dr. King, but also so many other civil rights leaders had a very global understanding of the civil rights movement, that it wasn't just about the United States, it was also about human dignity all across the world. And then part of the unfinished business of that movement was around economic justice. It was around trying to ensure that the full promise of this nation was extended to everyone of equal justice under law and liberty and justice for all. And so that has kind of animated a lot of my career. I ultimately kind of wrestled with a call to ministry. It's another story I can tell later if you're mm -hmm. interested, uh, but ultimately did come to this kind of epiphany that my distinctive call to ministry was not to be a pastor of a church, 
but to really try to reawaken and revitalize a commitment to justice within the church broadly. And so I did ultimately did get ordained in the American Baptist Church and the Progressive National Baptist Church, which is the denomination that Dr. King helped to inspire and mm-hmm. um, do serve in ministry at Alpha Street Baptist Church just outside of D.C. But I really feel like kind of my core sense of calling is, again, kind of working with the church in an ecumenical way to try to help Christians see a commitment to justice not as a extracurricular activity, but as something part and parcel to Christian discipleship, and to really try to deepen a commitment to justice across the church, which is more than kind of a commitment to compassion and charity. That is really important and is also an expression of Christian discipleship. But I would, you know, kind of argue biblically, a commitment to justice requires us to get underneath the root causes of injustice, to address issues of exploitation, of domination, of violence, of exclusion from community. And so that's kind of been the the kind of core work that I've tried to be committed to and uh, continue through Sojourners. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Adam. And can you, if you, if you take us back to you know, because you said you're inspired by um, your parents. I mean, and and if you if you look back at at your youth, at your upbringing, was that a moment where you realized that you know this is part of me? And and uh, and, and yeah, if so, can you share that with us? Yeah. So I I had an opportunity when I was. Young, I'm trying to remember kind of the exact age. Probably about, probably this about similar ages that, that my my two sons are right now, which are nine and eleven. Mm-hmm. To travel to Chicago, so I, I grew up in a place called Bellingham, Washington. It's a really mm-hmm. beautiful place. It's a little bit sheltered and relatively homogenous, um, but it's a great place to grow up. And you know, my parents kind of started a life there partly because they both got jobs at Western Washington University. My dad was a psychology professor and then my mom kind of rose up through the ranks and ultimately become became the first black woman to be a vice president at Western Washington University. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I took this trip when I was somewhere around 10 years old to Chicago and my uncle, my mom's only brother, had started a bus company and was friends with Harold Washington, who became the first black mayor of Chicago. And He gave us this tour of Chicago, particularly the south side of Chicago, and it just kind of removed these scales from my eyes about the degree of economic racialized inequality in the country, but in particular in Chicago. And certainly it's not like I was completely blind. I mean, I had seen some of this through television, et cetera, but I think it just became much more clear and much more urgent to me just the degree to which the our, our kind of opportunity is still so racialized in this country. And so that, that was kind of one defining experience. Mm. Another one was when I was about 12 years old, I went on a trip with my parents across Southeast Asia. We went to Japan, we went to Thailand, we went to uh, Indonesia, and Singapore, et cetera. And it was kind of my first kind of major international trip. And I think that trip kind of really sparked my passion for 
kind of international development and trying to be a champion for human rights. And in particular in Thailand, you know, I was really confronted with the sex industry and kind of human trafficking, which, you know, as a 10-year-old, or I guess at that point, more like 12 or 13, was still pretty jarring. And that, you know, experience also just gave me a strong sense that I wanted to try to make an impact internationally. And it made me realize that we really are one globe, um, you know, we're one global community that is very much interdependent. And, you know, that I think has inspired some of the work I ended up doing around the global AIDS crisis, around debt cancellation. It's very much a part of the Jubilee uh, 2000 movement and continues today through kind of my advocacy around the Sustainable Development Goal agenda. I have a question about that global, you know, because you uh, like to work on that. You think that's important. Um, you did, however, decided to write a book about the country where you were born and are living in, the United States. So can you please explain, you know, why you did that? And does it, is it related with the global work that you do? And if so, how? Yeah. So maybe I'll kind of roll back in time a little bit to 2016. It was a very consequential election mm-hmm. in the United States, mm-hmm. to say the least. And it was the morning after the election. And my then five-year-old son, Joshua, came into my room, or our room, my wife and I, and we kind of had restless sleep. And I don't tell this story in any way to be partisan, but, you know, he asked us a straightforward question. He was like, Mommy, Daddy, who won? And we were like, well, we think Mr. Trump won. And he said, I don't understand how someone who has said and done such mean things can win. And Maurice, I was literally speechless, which is kind of Mm -hmm. rare for a Baptist preacher. But, you know, I I really didn't know how to respond because I was feeling a sense of anguish, not because a Republican won or someone that's more conservative than I won, but really someone that managed to win and ran a campaign that stoked so much of the worst, I think, impulses of our, our nation's history of racism, misogyny, xenophobia, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it was particularly galling for me because that wasn't a deal breaker for the vast majority of white Christians in this country. And so I I really felt in that moment, this sense of spiritual and existential crisis. Mm. And, you know, I was at that time, you know, in a really comfortable position working at the World Bank. I was leading an initiative on faith, trying to build partnerships between the World Bank and faith-based organizations. And just something broke in my spirit. And it was really clear to me in the days and weeks following that election result that I couldn't really fulfill my sense of call and remain at the World Bank, that I needed to kind of get back into mm-hmm. the fight for our democracy in one sense in the United States, but also in a larger sense, the continued struggle for full human dignity and full social justice. And so I ended up, you know, leaving the World Bank um, and returning to Sojourners, entered into a multi-year leadership transition with the founder, Jim Wallace, and, you know, that kind of led me back into this work. And I, and I tell that story because one of the things that I, I was wrestling with, and this helped inspire me to write the book, is I really felt like part of the reason Trump won and, and why kind of Trumpism became so popular is that there wasn't a clear unifying counter narrative to the very kind of persuasive and I would say seductive Make America Great Again 
mantra and narrative. And, you know, in many ways, Make America Great Again was kind of a dog whistle for, in a, in a sense, trying to kind of hold on to this past, which certainly wasn't great for many Americans. There's certainly great things about it. But, you know, worse was kind of this make make America white again or keep America white and Christian and peeled, appealed to this white nationalist sentiment that is still quite strong and I think is still not only a danger to American democracy, but also a danger to the witness of the church in the United States and around the world. And so, you know, I had become really inspired by the moral vision that animated the civil rights struggle, which is the vision of the beloved community. And Dr. King didn't invent it, even though he popularized Mm it. It was really invented by a clergyman named Josiah Royce, who led the Society for uh, Reconciliation. And Dr. King then, you know, was very moved by it and ended Mm -hmm. up referencing it in a lot of his speeches, et cetera. And the reason why I'm so drawn to it is that it is a moral vision that I think is rooted in the best of our religious traditions, Mm -hmm. not just Christian, but also Jewish and Muslim and more. And it's rooted in the best of our civic and constitutional values. And, you know, my most succinct definition of what the beloved community looks like, what it means is to build a society, a nation where neither punishment nor privilege is tied to race or ethnicity or to religion or ableness or to sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. to gender. And it's to build a society where everyone is seen, is valued, is respected, and our diversity is seen as a strength and not a weakness, and everyone is enabled to thrive. And I I realize that is a very big kind of vision, might sound overly idealistic, Mm -hmm. maybe even utopian. But I actually think particularly that first part is very, very measurable. We can measure through public policy whether certain people are punished disproportionately or certain people have privileged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that because of the history of the United States, both punishment and privilege have been viciously tied to race, to skin color for a very long time, creating this hierarchy of human value. And this is true in many other parts of the world, of course, and in different ways. And so in order to to change that, you know, we have to really be very deliberate about what kind of commitments and what kind of policies will will get us to a society where that's no longer the case. And I actually think the vast majority of Americans, let alone the vast majority of people in the world, Mm -hmm. don't want to live in communities and societies where that is the case. Um, So so anyway, that that kind of led me to, to write the book itself. And in the book, I really try to further unpack what the beloved community looks like. What are some core commitments, I call them beatitudes, borrowing from Jesus's famous sermon on the Mount, that would help us, you know, further realize the beloved community. And so they include things like a commitment to a Mago Dei equality, a commitment to what I call Ubuntu interdependence, a commitment to radical welcome, a commitment to dignity for all, a commitment to nonviolence, and a commitment to environmental stewardship. And, you know, I really kind of talk about each of those and then give really concrete examples of how the beloved community is already being built in beautiful ways all across the world, all across the country. And we need to not only kind of shine a light on all these great examples, but also try to find ways to scale them up. And certainly, you know, the work that you do at Church World Service, I think is a great example of beloved community work. 
um, as is the work at Sojourners. Hmm. And, and just for the for the listeners to to make sure, uh, so Adam writes about this in his latest book, latest right, your latest book, yeah, yeah, uh, yep. a more perfect union. So you really need to check that out, and I will make sure uh, there is will be a link to the book in in the notes of the podcast. Um, Adam, so you know, in your book, you are indeed you know de- describing about this beloved uh, community and how we need to get there ultimately what is the role of the church according to you within this yeah i mean the church has a really important role to play i would argue that the church really should be a balm that really helps to heal some of the wounds and the hurts and the needs you know meet some of the express needs that, that people have um whether those are you know, in some cases, material needs like lack of food, of housing, et cetera. And, and, and I, I'll be careful there because it's not the church alone that can solve those challenges. It has to be the church working in partnership with uh, the government and other sectors. The church needs to be more of a bridge builder. I, I really am disheartened by the way in which the church itself and, and kind of Christianity has not only been hijacked in ways that I think you know, really destroy the witness of the church, but also that it's become either it's kind of two extremes, overly politicized, where we kind of define our faith first through the lens of our politics rather than having our faith really to, you know, shape and determine our politics. Or on the other extreme, this kind of notion that our faith has nothing to do with politics, this kind of apolitical understanding of faith. And I actually think both are really mistaken or are really uh, wrong and even and even dangerous. Dr. King had a, a great quote that I love to to cite where he said, the church at its best is called not to be the master or the servant of the state, but to be the conscience of the state. And I think that's what we desperately need right now. We need a church that is willing to stand apart from political parties, not get co-opted within them. That's actually the mistake that the religious right movement made was they really tried to take over the Republican Party, but I think in the process they got co-opted into it. But instead, the church should be a conscience, a conscience that really forces or, or inspires people to prioritize the most vulnerable and most marginalized, which I think is kind of a, a core biblical principle that we should all agree with. Now, there are different ways in which we can achieve some of those goals through public policy, and that's where we need to have civil, but you know, real rigorous debate <laughs> about what mm-hmm. those look like. But I think that that core principle is something that the church needs to be an advocate and champion of. And that that's kind of the third piece is, is being that conscience. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, the, the church has this transformational role to play. And, and when you really look at so many of the social movements that have not only reformed our politics, but transformed them, faith has been an animating, guiding force. It certainly was in the civil rights movement. But even beyond that, if you look at you know, the kind of HIV and AIDS movement that I was a part of that helped win huge victories around the President's Emergency AIDS Plan and the funding for the Global Fund. Those wouldn't have happened without a lot of Christians advocating, not just, you know, kind of progressive Christians, but also many conservative Christians that helped to make all that possible. I would like to Take back on the on the church, then um, you know, because if we are looking at at the challenges in front of us, um, you know, 
they are most urgent maybe for the youth. I mean, it's their future. It's there now, they say even, you know, they, they don't, many of, of, of those I've talked with are saying, we are not the future, we are the now. You know, many of them, they're not necessarily attracted uh, by it because of, of the past, of the of the history. Um, then another discussion that I often have, you know, during these virtual walks is that the younger generation maybe thinks differently about spirituality and, and religion. And I'm not saying that is true. I mean, some, some are saying yes, others are saying no. So my question to you, uh, Adam, is what do you see happening in, you know, around you uh, with regard to church, you know, youth, younger generation and religion and spirituality? Yeah. Well, I think there's pretty huge changes that are taking place within and have been taking place within the church. I think there's a lot of young people that have left the church because they have felt excluded or have been abused by the church in different ways. You know, certainly the the sexual scandal within the Catholic church, although it's certainly not just exclusive to the Catholic church is a real black guy to the church. Um, there's, there was a survey done about 20 years ago by Barna where they interviewed younger Christians about why they're leaving the church and what, what, what is the general perception of Christians to, of the church. And they found that the three adjectives that most described how younger Christians saw the church was that the church was judgmental, was homophobic, and was hypocritical. Mm. Now, those are kind of three <laughs> qualities that don't bode well for mm. no. you know, the future of the church. And so, you know, I think that the church has been a little bit, not just a little, they, they, we have been, oh, you know, I'll certainly own some of this with the we, we have been too complacent in not only um, addressing some of these, you know, scandals and, and, and serious issues, but also being, you know, much more clear about what, what are the, what are the most important ways that we can live out our faith in a way that really kind of models the the ethic of Jesus. I mean, the good news in all this is that most people, including young people, don't have a negative opinion of Jesus. So despite all of the, the challenges that the church faces, it hasn't completely tarnished the image of Jesus. When people think of Jesus, they think of, you know, compassion and grace and love. So to me, that's the good news. Mm-hmm. I think the church has to get back to some of the basics of, of what does it mean to really follow Jesus? And, you know, that's easier said than done. But, you know, I would argue that churches that are more committed to a deep ethic of radical and unconditional love that show a deep commitment to inclusion versus exclusion that are deeply involved in their community, not not just on the compassion side, although that's that, again, that's really crucial but also trying to be an ad- advocates um, and work around you know a range of justice issues, that that itself becomes one of the most powerful forms of evangelism, of sharing the good news of Christ, and will draw many of those young people back to the church. Now, some of them may never come back to the church. And I think one of the things that it's also important to do is recognize that there is like a, a very close link between spirituality and religion. And many of the people that are now in this kind of burgeoning group called the nuns, the spiritual but not religious, 
you know, which is probably the fastest growing group in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. Many of those people still, you know, want to have some relationship with Jesus and, you know, might not come back to the institutional church, but would, but still want to have kind of an active faith. There was a great study that was done by the Fetzer Institute that did a very significant survey of spirituality in America. And what they found is that, you know, over 80% of Americans identify as spiritual and that there's a really strong correlation between spirituality and pro-social behavior. So in other words, the more spiritual you are, the more likely you're going to be engaged in community service. It's more likely that you're going to be engaged in efforts to try to improve your community, et cetera. But the other good news is that there's a high correlation between spirituality and civic engagement. So you're more likely to vote. You're more likely to participate in Mm -hmm. advocacy, et cetera. And so I think we should celebrate that and, you know, again, create these on-ramps between those that might be drawn more to a spiritual identity, if you will, mm-hmm. back into the church and into new expressions of the church that will need to look differently than kind of the, the church of the past. And and what is the role of, of your organization uh, within this? And, and uh, you know, what do you hope is, is the leader of the organization? that, you know, you and your team will be able to accomplish in the next couple of years? Yeah, so I mean, Sojourners has always been this kind of parachurch organization. So we didn't set out to start a new denomination. (laughs) We're not um, a church in a formal sense, Mm -hmm. but we are an organization that does center our Christian identity. And, you know, we work in coalition with lots of other faith traditions and with people that are atheists and agnostic, et cetera. But we really think that it's really important that there is a strong Christian voice and constituency that weaves together a commitment between what we call spiritual renewal and social justice, that these need to be fused, that there's this powerful synergy between spiritual renewal and social justice. And, the, and when we are kind of engaged in spiritual renewal, that actually draws us into a deeper commitment to justice. And so, you know, Sojourners, you know, many, many people know us because of our publications. We started as a magazine, um, but now we have a digital publication that also produces content. You can access it for free at www.sojosojo.net. But we also have an advocacy and mobilizing arm that is kind of part of where I see the, the growth of Sojourners in the future. I want to grow our readers but I want our readers to also see Sojourners as a vehicle through which they can learn how they can better put their faith into action. So we have campaigns that are focused on immigration reform and immigrant rights. We have a lot of work, advocacy work that's happening around economic justice and fighting poverty in the United States, but also around the world. We work a huge amount, particularly in the last number of years, around protecting the right to vote and strengthening our democracy. We, we have a coalition or a kind of a joint campaign through what's called Face United to Save Democracy. And then, you know, certainly work on climate justice and protecting the planet and more. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm i hopeful that more and more Christians of all stripes 
will come to embrace a commitment to justice and peace as integral to how they live out their faith and really see sojourners as a primary vehicle through which they can do that. So are your subscribers and you know, followers, I don't know if it's the right word, but um, you know, are they the majority Christians? This one, or do you have other people from other faiths as well, or from non-faith? And then what is the age group that you are attracting? Mm. No, that's a great question. So, yes, primarily Christian, although we certainly have some of the nuns are a part of our network and, and look to us and read our, our content. We we have and do have, you know, some non-Christian authors, um, you know, including Muslim and Jewish. So, you know, I think in, in a number of ways, we are at this kind of intersection of multi-faith work, even though, again, the majority of our readership and constituency is Christian. The um, age really varies. It depends on which kind of part of our work. So our magazine subscribers, you know, certainly skew much older. Some of that is just mm-hmm. older people tend to read magazines, and yeah. I wish that younger people did too. Um, but, you know, we're trying to kind of figure that out as we seek to sustain our magazine, which is still a really crucial part of our work. Mm-hmm. Our kind of digital readers, so people that come to our website to read content, tend to skew younger. So they're they're more kind of in our age group, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from Generation X to Millennials, et cetera. I think um, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to be creative about and and, and trying to be more uh, committed to is, is figuring out how to reach younger generations, particularly Generation Z and younger, and. You know, we've had some success there, but I think a lot more work needs to be done. Are you then in a way the the new church? Yeah, in some ways, I think that's right. I mean... And I think in, in in some ways, like we are a platform that is helping or trying to help to catalyze what the church can look like, maybe needs to look like in the next you know 10 to 20 years. And don't get me wrong, like I actually am a big believer in the importance of strengthening the church itself. But I also think, you know, as we talked about earlier, the church needs to adapt and it needs to develop new wineskins in terms of what church looks like. And as long as Christians or, or you know, people are able to find community and are able to, in that in those bonds of community, experience fellowship and intimacy with God, I mean, that to me is kind of what's what's most important. And then, of course, as I've shared, connecting that to a commitment to justice is is really essential. And, and that's, you know, kind of the, the bread and butter of Sojourner's work. Hey, Adam, uh, you know that this podcast um, is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I started more than 10 years ago now, 11 or 12. Um, and then two years ago, I was not able to, I had to walk alone, so I, I could not uh, walk with others to yeah, talk about life and, and stuff. So um, like a question that I always ask to my guests in the podcast is, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, so that is 15 to 20 miles a day, uh, for which cause would you walk and why? Hmm. 
<sighs> that is a great question. And, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by your commitment <laughs> to walk under miles. I would love to actually do that someday. It, it gets more and more tough for me though, but yeah, as someone who used to be a runner, you know, I ran all the way through college. So, um, so, you know, there, if I can cheat, I'll, I'll give you two, two issues because they both come to mind. And I actually think that we can't really address them apart from each other. So the first issue that came to mind is if, if you know if I could walk 100 miles and we could pass major legis- legislation that would restore the strength of the John Lewis well restore the strength of the Voting Rights Act and would you know make a series of changes to really safeguard what I call the sacred right to vote to me that would that would be the first and you know I, I think increasingly our Democracy in the United States is under assault. Um, a lot of this was triggered, sadly, by the 2020 election and the kind of big lie that continues to be quite common that the last election was stolen, but even worse by a number of efforts across the country to impose new restrictions, new barriers that often disproportionately impact or even targeted toward black and brown voters. And, you know, I think it's just essential that we, as a nation, can reverse that trend and, and really restore the right to vote. And then beyond that, you know, desperately need to end the gerrymandering of congressional districts. We've now gotten to a point where over 80 percent of congressional elections are actually determined in the primary and not the general election. Guess who votes in the primaries? It tends to be the most strident, the most extreme voters. And so part of the reason why I think our system is so broken and it's being fueled by this kind of zero sum us versus them mentality, which is, again, very unhealthy for our democracy, is because, you know, we've got these structural problems that are helping to, to fuel this, this mindset and, and these, these, these trends. And so, you know, a whole series of, of reforms that I think could help us overcome this crisis of polarization in our politics would be the first one. The second one would be the crisis of climate change. Mm. And, you know, there's not necessarily one single policy change necessarily that is going to completely reverse the, you know, current trajectory we're on. But, but I, but I do think if, if me walking hundred miles could lead to not only a kind of change in mentality and mindset, particularly in the church that could break us out of this either complacency or at worst this kind of mindset of dominionism in other words this mindset based on i think bad theology that god granted us as humans the 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 kind of uh, mandate to dominate the earth rather than to care for it and protect it you know i think that could then lead to a huge change in political will and hopefully kind of get the whole issue of climate change and combating climate change through you know, renewable energies and mitigation efforts and adaptation and more out of this kind of partisan box and literally could become a, a nonpartisan cause and a bipartisan cause. Great. And, and we can walk together for that as well, for those two causes. Um, 
and, and you know, just as a reminder for the listeners, I've started to walk, you know, to end hunger uh, and and poverty and and uh, you know to end injustice. So, and that's all related with what you just said. I would like to piggyback on both. And the first uh, follow up question on the on the first uh, topic that you mentioned is polarization. So, I really believe um, that connecting folks. Uh, with each other is a, is an important first step for this polarization. So I try to connect my guests. So I would like to um, uh, share the question of the previous guest. Um, so he has a question. It's a he. He has a question for you. So hold on. I need to do something from my side, and then it should work. Yeah, I would like uh, to ask uh, the next person who comes after me really to reflect on you know. Uh, his or her uh, aspirations or wishes for the new year. I think I think one of them is, and I've actually been meaning to do this for the last couple of years. And maybe this is kind of a deferred aspiration, but uh-huh. I really want to spend more time, particularly in the South, really talking to <clears throat> more conservative Christians. Um, you know, I have some of those folks in my life, and I'm grateful for that. You know, those relationships and that dialogue. But I, but I do feel like it's important, and this kind of goes, comes back to what we need to do to overcome so much polarization, to listen more deeply and, you know, to spend time out, outside of your comfort zone. And in my case, you know, I'm pr- predominantly in kind of progressive circles, although, again, you know, I certainly engage with and interact with people with very different political perspectives and ideologies. But there are times where I'm just completely baffled by why so many white Christians in particular remain so loyal to the former president or why, you know, the the kind of conspiracy theories that have unfortunately seeped into many parts of the church have become so durable and, and, and remain so strong. So, so in any case, like, you know, I think that that's one. And then the second one is, you know, we're, this is a little bit more institutional inside Sojourners, but we're in the middle of, of, of kind of fashioning a five-year strategic plan for the organization, which I'm really excited about. And so not only do I want to land that strategic plan, get it done by, by the spring, which would be the early part of the new year, but, but I really hope that all of us, not just me, can really center and ground that plan in a kind of what I, what I would kind of borrowing from Walter Brueggemann, a sanctified imagination about where we want to see the church, where we want to see the country, where we want to see the world five years from now, let alone, you know, much longer than that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful about kind of what we'll come up with. Um, but I want to make sure that, it, again, it's kind of rooted in a deeper uh, spiritual vision. Great. Um yeah, and your uh, question for the next guest. Yeah, I mean, I think my question would be, you know, what are some of the the spiritual practices? Maybe it's walking 100 miles, but what are some of the spiritual practices that they have found to be the most regenerative and the most transformational uh, for their for their own kind of life and activism and, and vocational pursuits. Great. I like that question. Going coming back to your, you know, you, you mentioning uh, you know, your walking for 
a climate change to do something about it. So I would like to bring us to something that I try to raise in this podcast as well, and that's around the sustainable development goals. So there maybe we are going from only you know US to the whole world. Um, so Mike, I have a couple of questions around this. And the first question is, uh, what do you like the listeners to know about the sustainable development goals? That's one. And second is, you know, many say that we will not be able to reach those sustainable development goals or the fact that we are behind with reaching them has to do with that we never have paid proper attention to the skills, knowledge uh, and capacity that we need as individuals and as community um, to reach, to work on those goals. And a group of people now came up, for example, with the inner development goals. And there are five inner development goals that are developed. Um, so, you know, uh, being, thinking, relating, collaborating and action. Um, so the second part of the question is, yeah, what do you think about that? You know, something like the inner development goals, which is maybe more um, enablers to to you know reach towards those goals. So yeah, two parts to this question. Yeah, another great question. So for the first one, I mean, I am a big fan and champion of the sustainable development goals. I was very active before they were created. Uh, at that time, I was leading advocacy efforts for World Vision US and you know, was doing a lot of work to try to ensure that the sustainable development goal agenda, which you know, basically replaced or succeeded the Millennium Development Goal agenda was as robust and comprehensive as possible. Um, and I'm, you know, I was encouraged that the Sustainable Development Goals not only, you know, included a goal to end extreme poverty by 2030, but also had a bigger emphasis on combating inequality, included a commitment to address issues of rule of law and governance included a commitment to address climate change and address environmental sustainability. So, you know, some people argue that the goals are too complicated and too big, but I think given where we are now, we can't separate a commitment to ending extreme poverty from all these other issues. It, it really requires us to have this more integrated approach. So I actually think it's a strength and not a weakness of the sustainable and goal agenda. I think where the SDGs fall short is that they're not politically binding. Um, they are, you know, essentially, it's up to governments to take them seriously. And it's up to us as civil society to hold government leaders accountable to the SDG agenda. And, you know, I I worry that partly because there wasn't a, I think, concerted enough effort to popularize the goals when they were created. You know, if you ask the vast majority of Americans... And I, I do this actually in a, in a class that I teach uh, at Pepperdine as an adjunct professor. Mm -hmm. You know, most most young people, little people in general, don't know about the sustainable development goals agenda. They don't know that the United States, you know, was a part of creating it and ultimately endorsed it. And so, you know, without that kind of public knowledge, let alone pressure to generate political will, I just fear that you know these really amazing aspirational goals will end up in a kind of dustbin of unfulfilled promises. So, you know, that onus is on us, but I think a lot of work needs to be done in that regard. I really love the idea of the inner development goals. Um, I'm less familiar with them until I had a chance to read about them as in preparation mm -hmm. for this podcast. Yeah. But, but I think it, it kind of relates to some of the things that I talk about in my book, A More Perfect Union. Mm -hmm. You know, the 
the creation of the beloved community is not simply about a series of policy changes, although those are really critical. It's a journey about who we want to be as people, as you know, people of faith, as Christians, and in my case. And it does require a lot of that inner work. It requires, you know, a, a series of commitments to virtue and, and, and to living out uh, a series of values. And so, you know, I think it's really important to kind of link the inner with the outer. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about how that's getting realized and, 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 and kind of lived out. But I definitely support that whole effort. Music is very important to me, so I always have a music question as well. So if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who you are, um, you know, which song or piece of music would that be and why? Yeah, so immediately think about the, you know, classic, iconic song, One Love by Bob Marley. And, you know, I'm a huge reggae fan. My wife is from Jamaica. So definitely have, I, I consider myself an honorary Jamaican being married to uh, someone from Jamaica. But the reason I love that song is that, you know, it, it really is about interdependence and mm-hmm. unity. It's about Ubuntu. I, I referenced Ubuntu and interdependence before, but the reason why I kind of focus so much on Ubuntu, I, I had a chance to study abroad in South Africa in 1996, just about a year and a half after Nelson Mandela was elected first black president of South Africa and the end of apartheid took place. And it really was this life-changing formative experience for me being there studying. I got to witness one of the truth and reconciliation commission hearings. And I really got to see in a very visceral way, this whole African concept and philosophy of Ubuntu. Archbishop Desmond Tutu summarized Ubuntu with the simple statement, I am because we are. And, you know, it really is this understanding that our lives are very much interwoven together. And I can't fully be, I can't fully realize my God-given potential unless you are able to fully realize your God-given potential. And to me, it's, it's kind of the golden rule on steroids is the way that to paraphrase it. And so this, you know, this kind of concept of Ubuntu to me is what the song One Love is all about. And, you know, it's also just a really beautiful, <laughs> beautiful song. No, I love that song also. So we will add that to uh, the Spotify playlist that uh, we made. It's called uh, hashtag walk, talk, listen, and they will find all the the songs uh, yeah, that have been selected by my guests. I, I think it's awesome. Um people heard me say this but yeah it goes from reggae to hard rock to classical to soul so it, it's it's really it's really cool if i listen to it you know i yeah i go through the experience again of of uh, you know having the privilege uh, of talking with so many different people adam you know these conversations always goes very fast um my my last question to you is um yeah any last message invitation uh question for the listeners 
Well, and I don't mean this as a shameless plug, but I invite you certainly to, to check out my book, A More Perfect Union. A new Absolutely. So, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but even without reading the book, I mean, the reason why, part of the reason why I just am so passionate about the beloved community is that it shows up in so many different cultural and faith traditions. I mean, you don't have to necessarily use the words beloved community to still be committed to building the beloved community. I, you know, I think it, it really could be this inspiring, unifying narrative, not just from the United States, but also in other parts of the world. But, you know, it shows up in the, the Jewish understanding of tikkun olam, what it will take to repair the world. It shows up in the Korean understanding of, of zhong, the kind of glue that binds us together. And so to me, the, the beloved community is not just about a destination. It's also about the journey to get there that we, you know, similar to the inner and outer conversation we had around the SDGs, you know, we get to experience deeper connection and community on the way to building the beloved community. And then, of course, the beloved community itself is this kind of expression of our deepest aspirations and, and deepest values. So, um, I mean, I'm always anxious to engage in further conversation about what it will look like and what it will take mm-hmm. to build a beloved community. And I just hope that, you know, that moral vision can be inspiring for the listeners that are are listening right now, but also, um, you know, that you'll not just give us some thought, but, 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 but really think about what is that, what does the beloved community mean to you? Great. Um, yeah, th- you know, thank you so much for, for, uh, today um i will make sure in the podcast notes all the links are there um and and yeah i i would uh really encourage people to check out your book because it's uh i think it's important uh, absolutely and and it's worthwhile uh read and uh you know i i think covid uh in, in a way showed us that we're all interdependent and then <laughs> we realized that for two weeks and then we went back to to business as usual because the vaccine was there for but at least the people in the west so so uh, I, I think we really need to realize we are really interdependent we have many challenges ahead of us in front of us that we can only solve together so so um you know and it goes beyond the us i mean as a world we uh you know we have to face uh and and solve climate change and you know, name all the others uh so thanks a lot, uh, Adam, and, uh, and good luck with everything you do. And um, yeah. yeah, we will keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. This episode was made possible by the support of an organization called CWS. You want to be part of the movement? Well, sign up to become a sustaining partner. As a sustaining partner, you can make a difference in the world automatically every month. Sustaining partners commit to a hopeful future by making compassion a part of their monthly budget. It could mean new systems to manage precious resources like water or diversified ways of earning a living that make people more resilient. For as little as $10 a month, you can transform lives. You want to check it out? Well, go to cbsglobal.org/sustain. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen.
please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.